Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. Welcome to Sunrise Church. Uh, you might be here for the first time, you might be watching online, or you might be actually here. Happy Father's Day. We have uh, just some great things. If you're a dad here, uh, Kids Ministry's got some great stuff, our family fellowship time. But we just want to say thank you for being a part of what God is doing in the world today. Uh, it's a great time to be a dad. It's a challenging time to be a dad. Um, I know a little bit about that. Uh, I took my family on a 12-week trip to Great Britain. That's a challenging time to be a dad. It's actually joyful. You guys, as a church, a year ago, when I handed the baton to Pastor Paul, who's doing a great job, but decided to be gone on Father's Day, so I took it. Uh, he's uh, leading and doing a great job. You guys gave us a gift of Delta dollars, uh, airline miles, to go on a trip of a lifetime. So as a dad, I started planning. Took a while to plan it, put it together. I have three sons, 21, 19, and 17. It took a while to get those schedules to coordinate. The end of May, took the family to Great Britain, England, and Scotland. And here's a little bit of what we did. Um, we flew into London. Oh, I know. Charles was so kind. He kept talking about his crown. I'm like, dude, you got a crown, but I got one just before my trip on my left rear molar. I like my crown, too. And... Um, Flew in, drove to York, spent time in that ancient city, Edinburgh up in Scotland, drove the Highlands. It was so gorgeous up in the Highlands of Scotland, down the Lake District Midlands, down to the Cotswolds. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's like everybody needs to go for a week. It's just this beautiful series of tiny little towns. I'm a Tolkien and Lewis fan since high school and college, junior high actually. And there's so many of their haunts and their places. We got to hang around there, went into Oxford. I don't know if you remember Elliot Audison. He was our youth and worship pastor. He's there right now doing a, a school uh, one year there with his wife and kids. And it was just a great time to be there, finally into London and see the sights there. And uh, just thank you so much for being a part of that. Now, I, it was kind of fun because when I rented the car in advance, I realized that an automatic transmission would be an extra $50 a day. I'm like, heck no, I'm a man. I'm driving with a stick with my left hand because you're driving in a right-seated car on the left side of the road. Not the wrong side of the road, the left side of the road, okay? And so I'm stick shifting. It was so much fun. Mary Beth was 
not excited at first since she saw that I knew how to drive a stick with my left hand. My first time ever. It's always first time for something, right? If you don't know if you can do it, just jump in. You'll find it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, I bought a SIM card in advance for my phone. I've never done that when I travel. I usually just disconnect, but I needed Siri to tell me which way to go because I'm pretty good around here, but I wanted like live reporting of the correct place to get off. And I'm so glad I loaded that SIM card in the plane. And when we landed, turned it on, I had internet and uh, it was great. Hop it in, had a car play right there, hooked it up to the system. I just punched in York, the hostel we're staying at in York. And it just, just told me everything. Normally I turn her voice off because she's really annoying, if you ask me, because I'm listening to sermons, podcasts, listening to music. I listen to books and every couple minutes, someone annoyingly saying in 10 miles, I'm like, shush. I'll figure it out when I get there, which means I usually miss exits because I'm not paying attention. But I didn't want that to happen on this one. I really needed that still small voice yelling at me all the time, telling me which way to go. Because multiple times we're stuck in these roundabouts. We have roundabouts here, but they have like roundabouts. In Swindon, just south of the, uh, the Cotswolds there, they have the magic roundabout. It's seven roundabouts in one. Seriously, look this up. Five roundabouts in a roundabout wrapped up in a roundabout. That's like a donut hole within a hole, right? I mean, that's awesome, okay? It was really, really cool to do that. Uh, four lanes, you got to get in the right lane in the roundabout to get out because there's seven exits. A couple times, I admit, we just circled around a few times. Nothing wrong with having a party in the car, right? And uh, finally made our way. But I really, truly, as a driver, only survived because I turned that voice on. And as much as I could, I just did whatever it said. And as I was finishing up this message this last week, I thought about that. First of all, I want to say thanks for the trip. It was so great. Family had such a wonderful time. And yet, um, I, I, think, I think about that voice that, honestly, in my car, I like to turn off because it can be a little interrupting to my day or to my podcast or the book that I'm listening to or my music. That's the worst thing you can do. If we're driving along and I'm listening to a song and you start talking, I'm like, I have to start the song over again because I was having a moment in the song. Anybody like that? I'm like, seriously. It's like, I'm glad you're riding with me, but I was listening to a song because I'm melancholy and I'm having a journey right now, okay? Anyway, and um, so, but I'm so thankful I turned the voice on. And I, I was thinking about that in, in relationship to the message and what we're going to talk about today is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have a voice speaking to us. Now, let me just set the stage before we get into our text for today. And there's kind of some background and foundation I want to fill in for you. The Bible says that when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, what that means is we become a Christian. That doesn't mean we start going to church. That doesn't mean we vote a certain way. That doesn't mean a lot of things that in our culture it means. What it means is we say yes to Jesus Christ. I did that in 1979 when I was 15 years old, when I finally responded to the message of Christ. Before that, I was lost, and then I was found. I was blind, and then I can see. When you have a moment, when you experience the grace, the forgiveness and mercy of Jesus Christ, you invite him as, as your Lord and Savior, you're saved. God places himself, his Holy Spirit, inside of you. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And part of his job is to speak to us, is to instruct us, is to mature us and purify us and all that stuff. But we as followers need to learn and develop the listening skill of responding to the Holy Spirit when he speaks to us. Because he does speak. 
And so if you've never heard him, maybe he's not in you, or you have willfully pushed his voice away and you've kind of cauterized or seared the voice of God in your life. Now I want to talk a little bit before we get in the message about the Holy Spirit in your life. Again, I'm speaking to believers, so if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, that's awesome. If you're online watching, this is great. But you need to know this is what happens when you become a true believer in Jesus Christ. God takes up residence in your life. And Paul writes about this and he gives us some instructions. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Now he's writing and he contrasts it. He says, don't be drunk with wine, which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And there's a little parallel there. But the basic idea is that this, this activity, in fact, I'm just going to tell you, it's to be being kept filled. Now, if you're a teacher, please forgive me, because literally that's how it translates from the language, the Greek language into English, be being kept filled, meaning it's a conscious kind of con- continuous invitation we have. And linguistically, it's a present passive imperative. It's present meaning uh, now, now, as in like now, it's always now, right? It's a continual now. It wasn't something you did. It's not something you will do. It's, you're doing it now. Right now, and it's a passive, meaning you don't do it, but you invite it to be done to you. You receive it. You respond to it. It's a present. It's now. It's always now. Opening up, saying yes, inviting it in. It's imperative. It's a command. So you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, are commanded to invite the Holy Spirit to fill us now. There's this constant filling. Now, uh, it's a cooperation, and I'll just give you an illustration I've used before, but I had a Ford Focus Electric. Now, it was kind of a first-gen, and so it only had 80 miles. This is not some Tesla with 300, 400, 600 miles. Okay, I'm not going to run a quarter mile in 8.73 seconds or anything like that. I never even saw a quarter mile. But it only had 80 miles when I would charge it up. And so every night when I got back home, I plugged it in. I didn't care how many miles were still left on the battery. I plugged it in because I never knew what I'd be needing to do the next day. And if you've ever owned an electric car, you know that range anxiety is a very real thing, okay? Range anxiety, okay? And not rage anxiety, but range, which sometimes can lead to rage anxiety. You only have so much juice to go. And, and, and so I knew that every night I'd plug it in. On the nights that I forgot, or <clears throat> Mary Beth forgot, the next morning I'd come out and I'd have like eight miles on it and I had to take the boys to school and it was cold. I had to turn the defroster on and all of a sudden this battery life goes down. Constantly keep it filled up. Topped up is what Paul is saying. You have an opportunity and an obligation to cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is in you to be kept being filled by him. Now, we can't be filled without God's doing the filling, his work, we can push back and resist it. How do we do that? A couple ways, Paul says. One, in Ephesians 4.30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And that's a metaphor meaning to bring sorrow or pain upon. Now, whoa, that's, think about that. God's, God's presence is living inside of you as a follower of Christ. You can hurt that. You can harm that. You can bring pain or sorrow upon the Holy Spirit because of our actions. What, how we do that? Well, we sin. We push back. We rebel. We don't obey what we know. When the Spirit speaks, we just ignore or say no to, right? That grieves the Holy Spirit. 
it's, it's, it's like what he says next in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit, which is a metaphor to put out the fire. Imagine there's a fire raging and you grab a bucket and you pour water on that. And you completely douse it with water. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. God wants to do a work in your life. He wants to, you know, be this work in you that creates something of a change. His Holy Spirit, his breath, his energy is in you, and he wants to do this, and you grab a five-gallon bucket and pour water on it. Again, how do we do that? By our sin, by willfully sinning and shutting out the voice of God when he's speaking to us and saying, no, I want to do that. Now, grieving can lead to quenching, but both can lead to a powerless Christian life. And we don't believe that you can lose the Holy Spirit. You can't lose the salvation that you have, but you can certainly nullify the work of God in your life by the way you live. And so as a follower of Jesus, we should be conscious of this. We should be aware of this. We should be responding to the Spirit. We should be grieved when we sin because it grieves the Holy Spirit, we should repent of that. We should not, not lose the Spirit, but lose the joy of the Spirit. Not lose our salvation, but lose the joy of our salvation. Let's not do that, friends. Let's be the most joy-filled, filled up, overflowing followers of Christ because that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, so that's the foundation. <laughs> Why am I talking about that? Because of a really interesting passage Paul said to preach. My pastor Paul, not the Apostle Paul. He said, would you like to preach Father's Day? I'm like, absolutely. He goes, here's your text. I'm like, that'll be an awesome Father's Day sermon. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. It's really cool. We are in a series this year on the writings of Luke, which is the book of Luke, his first book, and the book of Acts, his follow-up. It's the sequel, which is just awesome. This is the work of Jesus in Luke, the gospel message lived out, and now the work of God's spirit in the church proclaiming Jesus, his spirit lived out into a broader community. And so in particular, we're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in this series. And this is what we're talking about. We're talking about what would it look like for us to be like the early church. Let me read this text for you. Verses one and two of Luke four. And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. There you go. There's your sermon text. All right. Which is really kind of interesting because in very plain language, this is what it says. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. That Spirit led him out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil himself. There you go. There's your sermon. Now, I immediately, when I read this, thought, implications. What would it be like in our life if we were filled with the Spirit? Because we see it in the life of Jesus. If we're filled with the Spirit and that same Spirit leads us out to the wilderness, none of us would like that. We wouldn't even think that that's what the Spirit would do, right? But what if he does? And then what if that leading takes us to a very difficult, dangerous place? And if God did that for Jesus, which is which he's God. It's a theological conundrum here. What, what, would that, what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for maybe our false view of Christianity, which is that God would never lead us down a dark road? Because <laughs> the Bible is full of passages that tell us 
God will lead us to great places, but also to difficult places. In fact, here's my bottom line. Here's my big idea today. It's this. God will never lead you where his love won't sustain you. But he will lead you to dangerous places for his own sake and your own growth. But he will never lead you where his love won't sustain you. Because I'd rather be led by him into a very dark place knowing he's there than to be led in beautiful places where I don't need him. Could that be? All right. But back up a couple verses. Here's the context. What we have is we have Jesus was baptized. About 30 years old, he now begins this public ministry. And the public ministry uh, that lasts about three years, we see uh, it, mostly in the book of John with these celebrations, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus served these three, three and a half years. But it starts with a baptism. John's baptism, John the baptizer, Jesus goes and gets immersed in water. And we do that today. Now we do it, and everybody at that time was doing it to respond because of a baptism of repentance. Because the message was simply this. Hey, you've sinned, and the evidence of that as a nation is that Rome was conquering them. They were not a free people. They had no king, and they were under bondage because of their sin. And that's what John was saying. We are a people that need salvation, and they needed that. But Jesus didn't need salvation. The people were being baptized to identify with this message of repentance. Jesus was baptized to identify with us as people, as humanity. God in the flesh who knew no sin came down, identified with sinful men and women so that we would know and he would know, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful thought that Jesus would be baptized to set the example. We do that here because we're commanded to do it and it's a picture of what God's doing in us. And then this Holy Spirit descends on him. So in this baptism, the Father God speaks, and he's well pleased. That's the, that's the Father's Day message right there. I love you. I'm proud of you. You're doing a great job, right? Well pleased. The Father speaks. The Holy Spirit comes down and descends upon him, empowers him for ministry. The Trinity, right in this Father, Son, Spirit right here. And then that Spirit leads Jesus out to the wilderness. Why? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he lead him to green pastures or pleasant places or to the mall, right? I mean, get a smoothie. Let's have some fun. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus' ministry was a ministry of working with hurting and broken people, pushing back the self-righteous religious people, welcoming the hurting and broken. We, we say around here, the least, the last, and the lost. And in order to do that, he had to identify with broken people like you and me. And he, he did this. And so he went through this wilderness experience where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days a night, filled with the spirit, saturated with the spirit. Imagine a sponge, a kitchen sponge, and it's dry, and you squeeze it. It's, it's not going to work. You, you immerse it in water. You let the water flow all the way through it. You dunk it down. You bring it up, and you squeeze it, and it just flows out. That's Jesus, totally immersed in the Holy Spirit, now being led, being guided. Um, Keith was telling me this morning, we were talking, and he loves the one in Mark, the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about this, where it says he was driven out by the Holy Spirit. He, and that, this is strong. This is not an accident. His next step is to go through temptation. Now, why? For you and for me. Um, in, in the Old Testament, the idea of wilderness, sometimes seen as a desert, was a place of testing, was a place where you felt like God had abandoned you, but he was ever present through that journey. It was a desolate place, so it was a dangerous place. Wild animals, 
I mean, just barren, no water, no food. The wilderness was a vast and rugged place that lacked all the provisions. If you wanted to find a place to take Jesus to where he would have nothing, it would be the wilderness. Now, when we look at the wilderness, we look at this. This is, I've shown this before. This is the wilderness according to Google. Like, man, let's just quit church and go there, right? Let's have church out there, right? I mean, you, you, what, you got like a Subaru. I have a Subaru. You got all-wheel drive. You got full-wheel drive. It's like, forget, forget a building. Let's get out in the great Northwest, right? That's beautiful. We all want to go up there. Let's all go camping, right? False view of the biblical wilderness. The biblical wilderness looks like this. This is the wilderness of Moses. This is where the children of Israel survived 40 years on God alone. And you wonder why they complained, right? Why they argued with Moses. I'd rather go back to slavery in Egypt. This is the wilderness of Zin. This is down in the region of the Sinai. And they were there 40 years because of their rebellion. But through the 40 years, God was moving and teaching. Moses was writing the scripture. God was ever present with them constantly providing for them if they chose to trust him. This is the wilderness of David. This is uh, down in the area, the Judean wilderness. This is where uh, David as a young man, as a warrior, even though he was anointed to be king, didn't get to be king yet because Saul was still king. And so David fled out there with his mighty men and they, they hid in the caves and the rocks. This is what David endured. And you read the Psalms about a dry and weary land where there is no water. This is what he's talking about right here. And this next one, this is the wilderness that Jesus went to. This is, uh, imagine you're in Jerusalem, you go up a hill, over a valley up a hill called the Mount of Olives, and you descend all the way down, 35 miles down to Jericho, the, the Rift Valley, the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on the planet. 15 miles wide, 35 miles long. If you want to go to a place to die, this is the place to go. And the Spirit led Jesus here. I love this quote from Klaus Vesterman. It says, the wilderness is a place of having nothing but lacking nothing. Do you really think that God would lead you there? Because he will. And um, if you've never been led there before, um, it's a tough place, but it's a beautiful place because it's where it's just a complete, utter dependence on God, where you can't reach for the things that have sustained you because they're no longer there and the only thing that carries you is God and God alone. The wilderness in the Bible, in the scripture, is seen as a place where God takes us to so he can do a necessary work in us. So when that's done, he can do a beautiful work through us. And that is why Jesus was led out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He, he read, you know, we read this in the scripture that he led the people of out of for 40 years in the wilderness. He led Jesus out for 40 days in the wilderness. And the basic idea is this, the temptation that Jesus experienced is reminiscent of all temptations. I'm not gonna preach that sermon. You can see that, you can read about that. Basically, the temptations were continuous, but they categorized in what we would call like the world, the flesh and the devil, or the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eye, a lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Stuff that's been going on for centuries, forever since the beginning. There's nothing new under the sun. You're not having a new temptation. <laughs> it's the same temptation. But you and I need to realize this. In the same way that we're tempted, we have a Jesus that has been tempted. In fact, 
This is a passage, if you've not memorized, meditated, taken this in, you need this one. Especially if you're a new believer. You've got to have this verse. These two verses, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. The writer says this, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When you and I are tempted, and we are, in fact, do me a favor, raise your hand. Just, I'm not going to the, ask the question yet because I want you to be honest. Everybody raise your hand. Come on, your hand's not raised. Let's go, come on. Okay, now I'll ask the question. How many of you were tempted this last week? Good, okay. Keep your hand up. How many of you gave in? See, this is church. Don't lie. We're all tempted. We're all tempted in many ways. The problem is we think we're alone in that temptation. We, in fact, sometimes want to be alone in the temptation because we don't want anyone else to know that we're being tempted because that might look like weakness when, in fact, it looks like humanness, okay? Every one of us are tempted, and there's nothing new under the sun with our temptation. But what Satan wants to do is drive us to think that we're the only one, and we stumble and we fall. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. God, eternal God, in a human body, in the flesh, incarnate is the way it's said, came down to live. He understood what it was like to be human flesh. He was tired. He grew weary. He grew exhausted. He was thirsty. He had some good friends. He had some bad friends. He had big crowds that supported him. He had crowds that deserted him. He had the religious leaders that were angry and seeking to destroy him. Jesus knows exactly your highs and your lows. Jesus experienced the full measure of temptation. He was personally tempted by Satan. That's, that's got to be strong, right? Far more than what we're tempted. But for you and me, our temptation usually ends when <laughs> we give in, right? Anybody? Okay. All right. Jesus experienced the fullness of it. Here's my only way I can explain this, okay? So imagine a gauge on uh, some kind of a pressure system, a water system or an air system, and it goes from like 0 to 100 PSI, something like that, okay? Or 0 to whatever, okay? And all of a sudden, the pressure builds, and the pressure builds. You get to 10, you get to 20, you get to 30, you get to 40, you get to 50. We start rattling. Our pipes start shaking, right? And that's some serious temptation. It is. You know that. And we're facing it. Jesus experienced it all the way to 100. In fact, he went into red line. And he didn't sin. Now, the reason I say that is not to put him over you. He's God. And, and, and theologically, he couldn't sin, which doesn't diminish the temptation at all. In fact, it shows us that he can carry you all the way through. If you choose to lean on him. Because he knows everything you're going through. And you can boldly come to the throne of grace and receive mercy in time of need. Don't isolate. Don't withdraw. Don't think I'm the only one. Nobody else knows. That's a lie. Jesus knows. And he loves you and he wants to carry you through it. You can have comfort in knowing that I get the year is 2023, but there is no temptation that has seized you except which is common to everybody. But when you're tempted, you'll be given a way of escape if you choose it. Bonhoeffer writes in Life Together, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him and the more deeply he comes involved in it. 
the more disastrous is isolation. Satan wants to lie and say, nobody else knows what you're going through. In fact, you can't tell anybody else because that's called shame, right? That's called guilt. That's called fear of judgment. So don't tell anybody. Don't reveal your struggles to anybody else. You can do it. And he just puts more and more and more pressure on. The Bible tells you, you got a family called a church. You got a Jesus called your Savior who experienced all of it. If you don't have a community, a small group, a family group, accountability group, men, women, I don't care. If you don't have people around you that you can reach out to in your moment of need, sin will devour you because it'll get you alone. So just come to that moment where you know, listen, Jesus experienced it. So he knows. He's praying for you right now. You know, too often in America, we have this false Christianity that leads us to believe that God's mission is to make us happy and healthy and we'll always ride the blessing wave of God. I'll tell you this, in my leadership at Sunrise, I've been here 29 years, so blessed to be a part of this church. And if you've been around a long time, you know we've made some huge steps, leaps of faith. We've gone incredible places with God. And every one of those were faith journeys. But they all led us to a crisis of belief in a moment where like, okay, we heard God call, we heard God lead, we're following him and it's fun and now it's not fun anymore. Did he really say that? Were we still going to go? When you continue going, he shows up in an amazing way. I believe that adage, where God guides, he provides. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It can be really, really challenging. A false Christianity is called health, wealth, and prosperity. That if you believe God, everything will be fine. Well, that's not how it worked with Jesus, okay? That's not how it worked in the early church. Everything's fine. Look at the Apostle Paul. He got beaten, shipwrecks. I mean, the list is endless of all the things that happened to him. And I don't think there's anyone closer to Jesus than a guy like Paul, right? The reality is this, is that following Jesus, his leading, following God, letting his spirit take you to a place won't always be easy, but it will be his plan. God will never lead you where his love won't sustain you. He has eternal purposes in mind. And those wilderness seasons, those are eternal things for us. Now, it might seem like an eternity, you're in the wilderness, but what I mean by that is, when he purifies us and when the only thing we have is him, that changes us. I've had several in my life and I come out hurt, scarred, broken, but built up and stronger, drawn closer to God than ever before. When you draw close to God, man, he will purify you. But that's not easy. It's not easy. I love Psalm 23. And I would love to hang out in the beside still waters, hanging out and lying down in the green grass in the pasture land. I'm not really sure that I want to keep going through Psalm 23 where he leads me through the dark valley of death because that doesn't sound very fun. But when he does that and it's dark and it's cold, he's right there with you. Um, our family watched this movie, 13 Lives, last night. Really long movie about these divers that went in and rescued the, the 13, uh, the 12 kids and the coach in, uh, in Thailand. And it was just, just crazy uh, wh how they brought them out. And um, they had to anesthetize them to bring them out and to carry them through that journey. It's kind of like what God does. Sometimes he has to remove our own kicking and thrashing and we just have to flow with him and he leads us to safety. Um, we have the same spiritual means that Jesus had. 
you know it. He's in the wilderness. He prays. He quotes scripture because Satan quotes scripture. He misquotes scripture, actually. Satan, he, he knows how to deceive. But Jesus quotes real scripture, and he stands strong, and God nourishes him at the end. Um, temptation may be Satan's weapon to defeat us, but it's God's tool to grow us up, to be like him. Um, I just want to close with this thought. I'm reminded of the great statement by Corey Ten Boom. If you've never read her story, pick up The Hiding Place, read it. And, and this is how she says it. The safest place to be is the center of God's will. Unfortunately, we don't understand what she said. Because I would say in our language now, the most dangerous place to be is in the center of God's will. Because you will be attacked. But you're safe because you're protected. But you know what that meant? That meant she lost her father. She lost her sister. She almost lost her life in the concentration camp. You read her story. You read how God carried her through all of it. She nearly died. She was almost exterminated. In fact, when the Nazis came in, they were going to take all these people in this barracks, these women, but they had fleas, and they were so bad, they infested all the beds. And her sister Betsy is like, pray that God removes the fleas. It's like, no, we can't do that. And it ended up happening that the Nazis didn't want to go in because of all the fleas, and the it saved their lives. Can you rejoice in fleas? Can you imagine getting bed bugs? Go, God, thank you for the bed bugs. Because you might be doing something cool. No, we, we get annoyed at little stuff like that. But this is what she says as she journeys through her own experience. She says this, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. So when you walk through a wilderness, when you walk through a painful journey, when you walk through an experience and you go, God, why have you abandoned me? Maybe he hasn't, friends, because he promised he'll never leave or forsake you. Maybe he's walking with you through that. And the only way for you to learn about drawing close to him is to walk through the wilderness. Listen, I love you guys. I know, man, I've been on this journey for a long time with you. I've seen parents go through the deepest pain with their children. I've seen parents with health issues. I've seen people have their spouse leave them and stay strong with God. I've seen just so many conflicts. I've seen death. I've seen destruction. I've seen Satan-induced activity in someone's life that you love and know, and you bear the pain of that. But he is with you through all of it. And even though we would pray, oh, we would pray, God, remove this wilderness from me. He might be leading you to it, because as he leads you through it, he's going to do an amazing work of your life. In your life and, and none of that's pretty but it's beautiful in God's eyes as you draw close to him let me pray father a lot of ways to apply this in our own hearts maybe we're going through a season of barrenness of dryness maybe relationally there's some brokenness maybe we've been carrying burdens our own or our kids maybe there's physical attacks maybe there's death and destruction we live in a broken fallen world and Satan seeks to steal and kill and destroy. But you have come to give life in all its fullness. And so in the middle of the weariness of this place and the struggle of temptation or struggle of the desert, Lord, the wilderness, man, we just hold on to you because you will never leave our side. You are guiding us through this valley. And again, if, if you led your son who was filled with the Spirit through this temptation season, you will bring us through. And now we know that you know. 
I pray we would pour out our heart to others who also know. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our church, the work you're doing in our lives. Thank you for this day, Father's Day. Thank you that you are our Father who's loved and cared for us, who's walked through the journey with us. We pray in your name.